Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Hey guys, welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Melissa and I are really not in studio. We're joining virtually, um, just the two of us for this next episode in our new-ish series on kind of getting back to basics. So I'm excited to get to continue in that conversation. The last few that we've recorded, <laughs> the three of us have left been like, that's been like our best episode ever. Like that was so fun. So I think, I hope you guys are enjoying it, but I guess even if you aren't, we are (laughs) having a lot of fun going back to the basics and digging in and talking about it. And um, I think I've really enjoyed just the reflection of coming back to these basic points and how how much I feel like I've evolved as a clinician since mm. being exposed to them the first time, how much I feel like Beyond Healing has evolved, notice that as a podcast has evolved. So I'm, I don't know about you, Melissa, but I'm experiencing a lot of just like internal reflection as we kind of go back to some of these. Yes, I, I am rereading these chapters and um, wondering how in the world I made sense of them back then. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Yes. And- uh, you know, just relying so much on all of the other things that we've learned and researched together over the last few years as a, a way of making sense of all of this. And so it feels really exciting to kind of bring it all together and see how so much of what we do really is kind of rooted in the same theoretical orientation. And uh, yeah, and now we get to share it with everybody. Yes. And who knows what we'll say about it three years from now if we do it all again. No. <laughs> No. <laughs> well, before we dig into these next um, few pages of the chapter, <laughs> I know it really is coming down to like every episode only covers a few pages. But uh, before we get there, I just want to mention to our listeners, um, Melissa and Bridger and myself are all really kind of in this process of back to the basics that that's like a theme of beyond healing in general. And so we're coming into a place of we're carving out more time for some of the the work that we used to do more of. And so individual consultation is something that has always been like one of our favorite ways to interact with our community. We love our courses and our programs and our big trainings and all of that. But those one-on-one just points of connection with other therapists are really special. So that is something that we want to mention on here. Um, I'm a little bit nervous of (laughs) what's going to happen after we say this, but um, I hope that if any of you listen to these and just think like, hey, I have this one case that I feel really stumped on and I would just love to connect with someone who can look at it through these lenses with me. 
um, we would be very open and have other consultants that we work with too would be open to doing just some individual case consultation, maybe running through case conceptualization, running through a um, treatment plan of where do we even start with EMDR and what could you try for the next few months with this client. So if that's of interest to you, reach out. Um, you can email me directly at jen.savage at beyondhealingcenter.com and I'll coordinate amongst all of us um, getting you in contact with somebody for a consultation. Mm-hmm. It's also up on our website now under the four oh, therapists. Good. You'll find okay. a spot that individual consultation and it's got all the info there um all of us that offer it the the pricing um we do 60 or 90 minute sessions depending on what you're doing um so yeah you can email us or uh, send a contact form through the website and we'll get back to you nice mm-hmm. okay okay so we are officially on page 14 of the book <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the slow pace is uh, just delicious, I think, that we can take so much time to really absorb the details of um, what Francine was sharing with us. And, you know, just for some orientation, you know, we're still in chapter one, and in chapter one, her focus was very much on laying the groundwork for how EMDR came about, but then also really beginning to um, describe why. AIP, Adaptive Information and Processing, as a theoretical model for EMDR felt so essential to her. So she begins to share the lineage, the research lineage of where that comes from. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in chapter er, in uh, chapter one and pages 14 and 15. Um, and in the next uh, chapter in chapter two, she continues that um, articulation of why is AIP so important because back then EMDR was still so new and so she had to make her case for why do we need a specific theoretical explanation um, for what EMDR is why do all of our other theoretical explanations feel insufficient and uh, so that's what we're going to kind of talk about today we're going to embed it in the the lineage Um, I think the Bridger and Caleb might do a either episode or maybe a small season of episodes, actually tracking the lineage of information processing models, um, because that is the the research lineage that AIP followed. So that's what Francine was looking at. And so she kind of comes to this point where she's saying, uh, AIP is important. It's, it's a information processing model. And we need this new way because all of the previous information processing models don't go far enough in her opinion. And the the bit that she says differentiates AIP from all of the models that have come before is really quite fascinating. <laughs> so I want to read you guys this sentence. It's in the, the bottom portion of page 14. This is what it says. A principle that is crucial to EMDR practice, but not specified in other information processing theories, and which is suggested by the consistent application of the procedures is that there is a system inherent in all of us that is physiologically geared to process information to a state of mental health. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like, that's like a kaboom statement. <laughs> yeah. And yet it feels um, maybe overly familiar at this point. It's like, well, yeah, but at this point in time, to suggest that there was a mechanism a force, a something in our body that, given the correct support and circumstances, 
is actually propelled towards mental health. Mm-hmm. That is um, different. Now, it's not different when we look at humanistic models. If you think about Carl Rogers and what he was talking about, mm-hmm. right? same thing. But remember, she was tracking the lineage of information processing models. And that, that, that does not come from the humanistic realm, right? So she's kind of cross-pollinating these, these different ideas. And we see similar ideas in, in other traditions. But this is really the first time that she's saying there is something in our body, in our cells, in our brain that wants to move towards health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That to me is such a shift into it can be a shift into this. It's a wellness model, a wellness approach. Like it's innately in us to move towards health and to be adaptive by nature. And instead Mm -hmm. of highlighting like what's wrong in the system and how do we just like manage that? It's saying like, no, like let's look at the root of where did this get turned in a more maladaptive direction? Like when, what's that fork in the road where the system said, I want to be moving towards health and adaptivity and something changed my path. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, that really sort of sets up, um, you know, later things that are in the EMDR protocol where there's this feeling of clearing barriers. You know, we sort of take that for granted. Here, Here's the reason why that's the, the metaphor that's often used, the language that's often used, because the idea is there is something blocking this natural flow of um, propulsion towards mental health. There's something in the way. And if we can figure out what's in the way and how might we uh, work with the person to remove it, then the assumption is that process will kick back into gear and they will once again be propelled towards mental health. So our task as an EMDR therapist is not to figure out every single step they're going to have to take to find a state of mental health. The The goal and the focus is around removing the barriers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. supporting the, the re-emergence, right, and the, the natural process that is embedded in their system. And for whatever reason, usually traumatic history, it has been turned off or blocked or um, oftentimes I, I would say, um, that stream and that flow has been, um, thinned, yes, <laughs> you yeah. know, that the boulder in the way something might be getting through, but it could be a lot stronger. When if, uh, in this metaphor, like that stream or boulder, I love that. If you think about from the very original water source, if it's already being blocked, almost immediately. And then you've got, you know, miles down that stream, like, and we're trying to move barriers there. Like we're not getting to the flow of health, the flow of water until we clear some of those earlier barriers. Um, But it is, it would still be a, have a very like low force behind it. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of comparing this to developmental trauma in my mind. You take early childhood trauma, developmental trauma. If they didn't have a lot of those resources and adaptive experiences, even as we're removing those barriers, we still have to build up. We still have to be able to contribute to all these contributaries. Like let's contribute to the flow um, of this wellness and the health. And so I love that image and thinking Mm -hmm. like metaphorically like that as we're determining with this model in that way, that's going to inform, are we really working on present day 
things? Are we trying to add new contributaries and, and feed the source? Or are mm-hmm. we removing barriers? How far back are we going? Um, like really, what is the potential of the system? Yeah, well, and I think that distinction between, you know, the riverbed and the rocks that surround the river versus the water in the river itself explains so much of the difference between, um, you know, late in life trauma that would be single incident mm-hmm. versus complex PTSD. Yeah. You know, that, that accident, that traumatic incident that happens when we're 45 and life before that has been relatively smooth as, you know, one big boulder gets dropped right in the middle of our river and shuts everything down for a while. And that is a totally different picture mm-hmm. than whose wellspring has dried up mm-hmm. and or been deeply polluted because of early life experience. And being able to, to have a sense of which version it is, is just essential for our work. Now, I do have to say, Francine <laughs> sometimes kind of glosses over that reality. Not sometimes, she really does. And, and I understand to some degree why. Um, because I don't think that her research and experience, and certainly her personal experience with EMDR up to that point, um, hadn't really illuminated how significant those differences could be, mm-hmm. right? It, it just wasn't quite there yet. But at this point in the evolution of the field, there's really this um, distinguishing and this discerning that's happening between how different our work is and how many adaptations to the protocol need to happen when we're dealing with that um, dried up wellspring versus boulder down river. And so in in the early chapters, you see her kind of make these little comments here or there about, oh, and you might have to modify if there's developmental stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, we need a whole separate book about that, please. Right. Or many. And many, you know. Those books are being written and those conversations are being had now. But at this point, she was simply trying to illuminate that there was a river, right? That That's where the conversation was. It's like, guys, do you know <laughs> that there is this force within us, this flow, and, and that wellspring of energy that flows forth from us desires to heal and yeah. has capacity to self-heal when things are running smoothly. And that's what AIP was really trying to say. I can't help but to imagine some beautiful resourcing with EMDR around just Mm. this statement, like just this fact. Oh, we should write a script for that, Jen. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Seriously. I'm just like to take something that could be stated so um, academically and like your physiology says that this is true. And then to say like, okay, if I can internalize that belief, like if I can internalize that reality, there's this newfound hope and this newfound um, feeling of capability. And like, I am capable of healing and being healthy and well and feeling well to tap back into that in the process of recovering and healing is huge. So many times we see our clients, there's the state of complete hopelessness. And I think to find that and tap into that could be huge. So huge. Yeah. And I, and I really do, I want to make the point that this concept was not um, Shapiro's. It is an incredibly old idea. Um, Eastern spiritual traditions have, you know, held this idea in multiple different forms for a long time. You also see versions of this 
um, in indigenous healing tradition, shamanic healing tradition. So, um, this is this was just the point of arrival for this one particular research lineage, but it was not a new and novel idea. The truth is, it it wasn't even really new in the world of psychology as a whole. Mm-hmm. Like I said, there's had his version of it, right? That that humanistic perspective. In somatic psych, the wisdom of the body, I mean, that, that was kind of the whole point, right? <laughs> this idea that there's something held within um, our body that knows what it's doing, that has the ability to uh, self-heal and and the wisdom to determine what is going to be effective. You, you know, one of my other practices is craniosacral therapy, and they call it the inner physician. And mm. and craniosacral practitioner, um, you are silently having a conversation with the inner physician of the person that you're touching the entire time. It's considered the ultimate guide of the whole process. Hmm. Um, It's just fascinating what happens. Um, And so if I ever needed convincing that this was true, um, those very, very tangible experiences of, of partnering with whatever this is in us, and we could have long metaphysical conversations about what we all think it is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, but, there, there's so many different healing spaces where this idea has really um, emerged and come alive. And so EMDR is now one of many that really rely on this concept that there is something uh, natural to the human species that propels us towards healing. And so from that place, we get the definition of AIP. So on the bottom of page 15, here's how Francine finally defines AIP after she has spent a long time saying, this is why you should believe me. <laughs> She's Briefly stated, AIP regards most pathologies as derived from earlier life experiences that set in motion a continued pattern of affect, behavior, cognitions, and consequent identity structures. And she mentions that she's going to explore this concept more. But in brief, that is how she defines AIP. Mm. So Jen, what do you think when I say that in, in such a brief statement? Mm-hmm. <laughs> It is beautiful to hear it concise and put together. And also like, it means so much. (laughs) Like there is so much packed into that one statement of, I mean, she's identifying the key pieces of, I mean, she's talking about so much the where uh, trauma influences it, how it's stored and held in the body, therefore how it reemerges in our life today, um, indicating what symptoms are really indicating about the past trauma. So that one statement I feel like is a very loaded statement, but is concisely yeah. kind of put together to describe AIP. Yes, I totally agree. And and there's, um, you know, it's it's so easy to see why she then has the questions that she has in, you know, phase three and the assessment, why she focused on the things that she did in the protocol. Um, and you begin to kind of see how mm-hmm. all of that linked together under this umbrella of AIP for her. Now, the sentence right after that, I actually have a bone to pick about it. So okay. I'm, I'm going to it and uh, we can talk about the parts that I feel slightly uncomfortable with and would maybe suggest to her that she make some tweaks if she was still with us to have that conversation. Um, so she says, The pathological structure is inherent within the static, insufficiently processed information stored at the time of the disturbing event. So, (laughs) on one hand, I totally agree with that. And yet, here is a piece that I think requires some nuance, Mm -hmm. at least... um, 
Well, actually, can you guess what I'm going to say needs some nuancing? I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying <laughs> to pinpoint, but now I'm like picking through all of it. Like, well, what could that possibly be? It's actually the second. So the pathological structure. This okay. this bothers, me, right? So if it's true that we have this wisdom inherent in our body, in our nervous system, that in some ways knows the path that is best for us, that is the healthiest, that is, um, you know, what we need in order to be okay in our world, then the idea that something like an experience could Mm -hmm. completely shut down that wisdom, mm, I don't buy it. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I don't buy it is because I think what is slightly missed here is what we now understand is the ultimate motivation of the human nervous system, mm-hmm. which is survival, right? So if we include that reality, that the number one thing that our body is always trying to do is keep us alive to face tomorrow, then anything that we are doing, it may be pathological in the sense that it causes problems, right? Or it creates distress or discomfort in the body, Um But the idea that it is wrong in some way or that it doesn't serve the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal of our inner wisdom, I kind of disagree with, right? So so I think that I would shift that and say um, simply the structure is inherent within Mm -hmm. static, insufficiently processed information stored at the time of the disturbing event. In other words, something stopped that processing process, right? And here I think that a digestion analogy is really useful. Mm -hmm. If something stops us from digesting something, it means that our system has determined that our energy is best spent elsewhere. We need to be doing something else with that energy rather than digesting. And I trust and truly believe that that is always the right choice. Now, we have to have um, a change in our environment before the body determines that that process can kickstart again. And so that to me is just a little bit of a paradigm shift of rather than seeing this as an oopsie (laughs) made by our wisdom, at the time of the event, it was absolutely the right choice. And how do we give an experiential moment to our body to show the inner wisdom? It is safe to begin again. It is safe to try digesting this material again. So that's just one slight shift that I would make in terms Mm of conceptualize this. I think what you're speaking to is the way that we speak of the difference in like adaptive there isn't adaptive and maladaptive it's adaptive by nature like that that change of structure is adaptive towards survival seeking securing some type of safety for the sake of survival mm-hmm. and where it becomes maladaptive or pathological as she's describing it is as we view it in our life today it's now it's in a mismatch it no longer fits the circumstances of today but to allude to the idea that it was pathological at the time or maladaptive at the time doesn't make any sense biologically because we are going to to make these shifts and changes and, and the system is going to divert energy where it needs to go for survival in that time. We're going to pick up strategies to survive. Those being our symptoms that we later see as maladaptive. Yeah. So so this whole conversation is so exciting to me, and I'm going to do my best to not rabbit trail into a sphere that 
is not relevant, but I really feel like it is. So, <laughs> so human beings, like as, as a species, the, the homo sapiens species, and also as individuals, the challenge of consistently updating stories to match reality is, is like something that we're trying to do all the time. Mm-hmm. Like this mm-hmm. a cosmological challenge that we're all facing, right? Mm-hmm. We see on every level of human experience, right? For instance, anybody that is a parent, you wake up and every morning your baby is a different human being and you <laughs> scramble to update your system to be like, oh, crap, you can open doors now, <laughs> right? System update. And I have to change my behavior and my whole world shifts a little bit in order to update my story to match the reality of who my child is. That's true in the aging process. That's true in any long-term relationship. That's true in any uh, healing process and unfolding is that one of the greatest challenges of being a human being is the constant need to update story to match the truth of our reality. Yes. Our reality changes so freaking fast nowadays. It is absurd how fast everything changes. And and so this this isn't an, an oopsie of our system. It's a lag. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a um, challenge that that our nervous system is constantly up against. Of oh my gosh, how do I integrate all of this new information coming at me? Especially when just staying in the delusion that things are the same as they were yesterday conserves a lot of energy. Yeah. So if I don't have enough energy to spend to be updating my stories all the time, I'm going to stay with the old one. I'm 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 committed to that because it got me to this day right? I can't be updating my stories constantly. Doing that requires so much attention and energy and self-awareness and observation that if we're in a high-stress situation, if we're in a trauma situation, we don't have time for that. So it makes sense to me why this lag is inherent and why so much of the healing work is updating a story to match the truth of their current state. And, and even that, like we, that will propel us into actually seeking out evidence to confirm the old story because it's, it, it requires so much energy to restructure it, to update it. So instead of, you know, going through that process of taking the risk at, at having a new story and maybe becoming hurt again or experiencing threat again, we're going to hold on to the old reality and watch for confirming evidence as to why I need to keep this and start Mm -hmm. to develop this insulation around it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and right there is how, you know, what Shapiro says about not only is it affect behavior and cognition, but she says the consequent identity structures, Mm -hmm. right? We get committed to these survival strategies. And as we deepen our commitment to them and our consistent utilization of them, it becomes us. We become it. It becomes our personality. And that collection of stories to make sense of our past reality carries forward as personality. And so he much is about the, the personality restructuring to actually update ourselves and believe that we can be a different us in response to a different environment. But we have to be able to integrate new information. And that's a huge challenge when we're under stress. That's like the first thing to go. <laughs> yeah. This highlights as we're thinking about clinical application of this way of thinking with the AIP model, it, it kind of nicely sets out like, okay, then you're going to find what are those barriers? What are those blocks that we need to reprocess? 
the true complexities of human development or to say, it would be nice if we could just go straight after those blocks. But the truth is, is when it's set into motion early enough in our development or it's been repeated enough, we Mm -hmm. actually will have identity structures formed around it. We will have barriers that we have to work through before we can even get to that. Not just like little, oh, here's a blocking belief. We need to return to target. It's like, no, this is, this human has formed their identity of themselves and the world around them so rigidly around this because it was at a critical point in development or repeated enough that Mm -hmm. now we have to start to look at what strategies are holding it in place. Uh, are holding that block in place? What pro symptoms, what belief systems are holding it in place? And we may have to start working with those before we ever get to being able to fully and and, um, authentically process a trauma network. Yes. Well, and I think one of the, the most challenging things that we're up against is that this is reliant on their life being safe enough to run that experiment. You know, there, there has to be a day life. Yes. They're, they're yeah. in, in this moment, you know, this is so experientially dependent, right? They have to feel it in order to integrate it. And so even if they're open to the conceptual cognitive idea that life is safer than it used to be, as long as their cells are communicating otherwise, it is really, really challenging for them to integrate because we don't integrate by cognition, we integrate by sensation. And so I think so much of our EMDR work is about in that present moment, um, allowing their nervous system to experiment with feeling something different mm-hmm. in this moment. And, and we, we get to see this, right? We get to see this in EMDR in this really tangible way when it finally happens, when there's this moment of that, that is a new feeling for me, right? Mm-hmm. I haven't... Mm-hmm that experience before, that's when we start to see that adaptive shift. It's almost like the new experience in their cells is the thing that starts to dissolve that boulder. You know, it is not cognition alone. We can slap cognition all over that boulder and nothing happens. But when, when the flow of water begins and it is rich and potent with new experience, it really does begin to dissolve that boulder. And sometimes at lightning speed, like it is Mm -hmm. just incredible to me how quick this can change and then the new story emerges it is not the story that that changes first most of the time it is the sensation that changes first and the story follows one of the most discouraging um points of like feedback i get from emdr therapists is if my client isn't in a really stabilized, safe Mm -hmm. place in their life today, how do I even begin to go back and do this work? And I think also what you're highlighting that is like, that is critical, but there's this piece of hope that says, if their body can find it, even in a short, teeny, tiny present moment in that relationship with us in the safety of the room, and we Mm -hmm. can build on this, like, can my nervous system dip into what it feels like to rest in safety for four minutes, (laughs) just to like feel it. All of those protective strategies, we can commit to allowing them right back in as soon as you go back into your life after the session. But somatically, we've got to be like, can your body rest in safety for a brief moment and build that resource Mm -hmm. in a way that says, 
that at least allows a space and a platform where we can start to dip into the past um, and have a nervous system that's able to rest in safety as we approach that. But if their life is chaotic and unstable and unsafe and this relationship itself can't feel stabilized or safe, we don't have a lot to work with with the nervous system at that point. 100%. Yeah. And I think with, with the most um, extreme cases where where life is chaotic, now it's, it feels very important to differentiate um, when based on how much power our clients actually have to affect change in that situation, right? Mm-hmm. When, when we're dealing with someone that is young, that um, for a myriad of reasons does not have a lot of personal power, um, whether that be financial, whether that be systemic, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you can't just assume that even an adult person can just, you know, make some big drastic changes and, and feel yeah. safe and or even for it to feel like a real possibility yet, right? In in those cases, our connection and our relationship with them is the place where it can happen. Mm-hmm. Because it is the only space and place that might be safe enough, especially for a good long time, for them to have access to that new sensation. And even if it's a child who doesn't have a life that is going to afford them an environment where they get to experience it anywhere else, in a moment of feeling a true sensation of nurture, care, love, right, being held in a safe environment, it changes the way that experience is held in their body, right? All of their trauma experiences are now held with a different story because they have a disconfirming experience somewhere, right? And, and over time, that, that subtle shift, it's still eroding that boulder. It may not happen as quickly, but it, it plants the seed of potential that as they do gain more power in their life, that they have an embedded experience that shows them what they're looking for. Yeah. Right. And and what life can be and what relationships can feel like and what they are deserving of. And without that embedded experience, no matter how uh, small, <laughs> mm-hmm. they, they can't even fathom a version of reality where that could be a possibility. And sometimes that's that's what we're doing with EMDR is we are installing a disconfirming experience that will have its major impact two decades from now. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Right, because that that is where we have influence and power in that moment, and it's so helpful to me if if that's the the version of reality that we're working with, it helps me to know right this mm-hmm. is what right, um, and it, it protects everybody involved from the despair that can creep in in those kind of situations. Yeah, all of this leads me to like this point of tension that I feel with the AIP definition mm-hmm. in general. And like some of the missing context that's in that for me is when we're talking about if innately, biologically, we have everything we need to adaptively process material and move towards health and wellness, where I find my hang up in that is when we're talking about a system, a nervous system that was that did not have the resources necessary to build that system, right? So that adaptive information processing system that we all have was created and built through experience and relationship. And mm-hmm. if there, if it was completely submerged in an environment where there was 
activation, crisis, threat, and no resource, no co-regulation, no attunement, no validation, it doesn't have the neural networks or the, the body memory of what those things feel like. So when we get into processing active, um, activating material, the system's looking for where's my adaptive information to borrow in this and it's mm-hmm. not there. And I think those therapists that serve really highly traumatized individuals or those with uh, very like developmental trauma, we know that feeling of like, I could say any adaptive thing to you um, and suggest an interweave or highlight, oh, that one coach was really like cheering you on. And it's like, at that time, they're so dissociated from their felt experience of it that even if it was adaptive, they couldn't internalize it. And so that just comes to this layers of working in order to activate that adaptive information processing system in their bodies now. It mm-hmm. maybe we have to pour in resources to build it first. We yes. have to give them those new felt experiences in the present moment of what it feels like to have those needs met, to have those resources, to be co-regulated with. So that becomes the new internalized model and understanding for this is what health and wellness can feel like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that based on all of the neuroscience that we have at this point, to, that to my knowledge, which is very limited in the grand scheme of things, <laughs> be careful with how grand I make that statement, but... What, what I wish could have been nuanced is that when Francine is talking about a system inherent in all of us that is physiologically geared to process information to a state of mental health, that we could change that last clause to a state of safety in our current mm-hmm. environment. Yeah. Like yeah. that that's actually true based like on what we know. Even. Yeah. 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 And, mm-hmm. and we see that. In, in research that talks about all of our systems are geared towards homeostasis, sameness, going, going to what we know. And so the, the two things that are always prioritized is um, safety, right? Safety and survival, but then also the lowest um, energy expense. That's what homeostasis is about. We're propelled towards homeostasis, not because it's like, oh, well, that looks familiar and homey. I'm going to go there. No, it's, it's the <laughs> best way to budget our energy and and our body is a mammal body which number one wants to keep living and number two is real concerned about energy in energy out right that's what we are and when we when we understand those two factors then we begin to see that if the body's wisdom begins to assess the environment goes oh I think I'm spending way more energy than I need to like I could actually kind of chill out a little bit you know Mm -hmm. enough threat has passed that maybe I could get away with only 50% of the hypervigilance that I've been walking around with because that is embedded in ourselves is a desire to expend less energy. That is the the thing that usually draws people to therapy, right? They're looking around at their life going, this does not make sense. Yeah. This is too hard. Yeah. Like this is not feel, this is not adding up. Right. Um, and so it's that uh, the the dual tracks of number one, safety and survival first, but number two, the most efficient use of our energy and our resources. And when we're overspending and our body's like, dude, you could really chill out. Like you do not need to be pumping yourself full of cortisol, but our system can't figure out how to stop because it's so um, cued to do that and keep scanning the environment going, but that could be, that could be, yeah. right? And 
was going, but it's not happening. Maybe we could. So in therapy, we're often engaged in this wrestling match between different parts of our system that are are trying to figure out how much energy do I really need to spend in order to be safe in my present environment. That is how I would nuance what, what she said about this inherent system in us and its propulsion towards mental health. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, I like that nuance a lot. <laughs> <laughs> really into nuance. It's very important. I In my tendency towards drama, it's a personal discipline to require <laughs> add nuance whenever I a really grand statement about something as if it's 100%. <laughs> Remember to add nuance. Um, yeah, so, so I'm curious, Jen, like, as you think about that and you're kind of processing how this applies to like therapist with client in a room, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like this rolling out, like what stands out to you as kind of the nuggets to hold on to, um, when we're in the, the nitty gritty of it with our clients? For me at this place, which is not going to feel like a surprise to anyone, but it comes down to case conceptualization first. Mm -hmm. Like when you're sitting in that space, learning about your client, adding in this information to say, how how do we make sense of this human right here? And what is therapy going to require? There (laughs) is no set guideline that we can just follow to say, okay, we just need to go through and clear that earliest trauma and move on through. Like, It's more about sitting in that space and saying, if this is a system that is geared towards health and wellness, adding in the nuances of towards safety, towards survival, with homeostasis, like we add all of that in, what is blocking it? Mm -hmm. And what resources does it have available and has it had contributing to its ability to be healthy and well. And to me, that just lies out this beautiful map of what are our targets? Like what are the blocks and what are the needed resources? Yes. yes. And we have this like clearly identified before we start anything, we're starting to see that. And then we can formulate our process of therapy around balancing those two or mm-hmm. barriers, adding additional resources. That I love that. That's such a, a clear image. And yet there's, like so much um, complexity that we encounter. And, you know, like one of the the questions that I'm kind of constantly asking myself with clients is around, you know, at this point it's like, I know how to get rid of the boulders, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I got mm-hmm. no problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, protocol is great for that, right? That's EMDR just nails that. The, the struggle is actually when the real issue is at the water source, right? All yeah. the, and, how do we re-enliven um, someone's life source like that? Like, how do we wake it up when it's been dormant? How do we detoxify it when it's been yeah. so contaminated? Like, those are the the cases that, like, it feels like I'm trying so many different things and holding so much complexity. And yet, I also just have this really deep sense that with time and and deep attention right just some being all the way back there at the beginning with them and looking at it it has a natural enlivening and detoxifying impact mm-hmm. right that we will attend to this together consistently it will begin uh to be invigorated by that and what's really cool about this is that that's actually quite biologically true right mm-hmm. so 
when and and this is just like one example that I I find a lot of um, support in is simply by placing your hand on the skin of another person no no intention other than touch and care the cells underneath your hand begin to react <laughs> they begin to wake up right they begin to um, more blood flow more sensation more warmth more heat they literally enliven they wake up in there, right? Just just by the touch of a caring hand. And I feel like a lot of our therapy, that is what we're doing, but we're doing it um, sometimes through touch, but really in a, a tuned body way of being present and helping their body wake up in a safe environment and saying somebody's here, right? And and it's safe to it's safe to feel again. Anything. <laughs> um and so, so like while yeah, like while it's deeply complex, there's also a simplicity about it because it is baked into our bodies to do it this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't get past this metaphor with the river, like the riverbed and the water flow. And we've, we're going to have to turn this in just like a slide to, to teach from because it's so powerful to think about those cases where you could clear every single boulder and, and there's the little no stream is barely trickling through, barely there. Or uh, you have this huge water source built up behind a boulder and you just tap it a few times and it comes flooding oh, through oh, there because so you've had this buildup. And so us trying to like think of the treatment plan or the therapy process of like, we're working in this riverbed to say, how do we get the flow of water while also mm -hmm. working through and clearing out those barriers? Yes, yes. Well, I, I don't know if you know this. I already have some slides. I call it the river of activation. Oh, but it's, yeah. Yeah, remember that. So it's it's yeah. slightly different, and I would like to modify it now, given this, because it doesn't attend to the essential water source. Hmm. Right? Assumption that water is flowing. And, and with this, you know, way of speaking about it, no, that sometimes that's the issue. Um, yeah. You know, there's all kinds of personality strategies that I think manage um, making sure that water doesn't come through when mm -hmm. it's safe to be in full expression of our vitality. Um, and the, <laughs> there's a lot of interesting strategies that we use to, to keep that at bay. But there's this whole separate struggle of what if it's not even flowing? Yeah. And we contend with that as well. And so having um, ways to think about and conceptualize both of those presentations and then things to try to see uh, what will help, I think is essential to help us feel clear about our work and know what next steps are, which is what we all want and why we have all of these big conversations. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's the literal moments with real life human beings in front of us that, that matters. So. For sure. Mm -hmm. Well, so I think, how does it feel to, to stop there? There's so much yeah. more to talk about. So and, and we, we made it about four pages, so I'm proud of this. And then we will we will eventually speed up, you guys. I promise. It's just that these chapters that are so rich with the theory, um, it's like, you know, catnip to all of us here because that's <laughs> a big part. Um, 
But before we're done, though, I do want to let you guys know that um, we have kind of revamped our healing intensive retreat program. Um, we have been, you know, training our other therapists to be ready to do that more and more. We've been in a transition with how we do it a little bit. But the point is, we're ready. And uh, so I want to let you guys know that if you're interested in healing retreat um, for yourself or your clients, please let us know. Um, you know, as Jen was mentioning earlier, we're having a back to basics year. And what that means is um, we're reshuffling our calendars to try to make room for things that for the last few years there just <laughs> hasn't been room for. Things that I'm going to be making room for is healing intensive retreats specifically for therapists. Okay, So, um, you know, our, our other therapists are able to work with clients that you send, but if you want one for yourself, then know that we're going to make that available specifically for a therapist so that you can work with one of us because we know how challenging it is to find healers. And it is literally our greatest value here at Beyond <laughs> is to support um, and bring healing to the healers. And so this is one of the ways that we're prioritizing with our time uh, to make sure that that is offered. So if you are curious about a healing intensive retreat for yourself, um, on our website, there's an area that's all about the retreats and you can get on there and have a look and send a contact form and that'll get to me or get to Jen and we'll talk with you about the details of that. But we're excited to have you here in Springfield in our building. All, all around. So much coffee. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Well, they're through page 30. So we're still did give some supplemental following along on social media. I did post the link to the Peter Lang article that we referenced in the um, episode. So if you haven't seen that, uh, go and check it out on Facebook. I posted it there. I also posted it in our online community, um, beyondhealingcommunity.com. If you're not a member there, highly recommend it. That's where we post a lot of our extra stuff. There's so many other opportunities on there. So um, go read the Peter Lang article. Uh, I had somebody read it and say, um, it took me a while to understand why this was relevant, but I promise <laughs> it is a scholarly article, but it really is fascinating. You can skim it if you're not into reading deeply scholarly articles. That's okay. Um, but uh, so that supplemental reading is there and we are going to make our way through this book slowly but surely because we don't want to skim over the good stuff. It's just too important. Mm -hmm. All right. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast. <laughs>